I'm Lindsay Morgan, and you're listening to Talking Policy. Around the world, democracy is being challenged as never before. As Americans gear up for the midterm elections, many are wondering how countries like the United States can safeguard the integrity of elections, encourage and facilitate broad-based political participation, prevent violence, and ensure that independent media flourishes. This fall, Talking Policy's series on democracy will welcome experts from across the University of California to consider the future of democracy. Democracy depends on many things, and one is the participation of its citizens. But we know that many people don't participate in their democracies, and today we want to find out why. What drives and what discourages political participation, both here in the U.S. and globally? We're here today with Ceci Cruz, a political scientist at UCLA, where she works on how information and social networks affect political participation. And Christopher Ojeda, also a political scientist at the University of California Merced campus, Christopher studies how mental health and poverty shape the political engagement of citizens. Ceci and Christopher, thanks so much for joining us on Talking Policy. Thanks for having us. For having us. Yeah, it's great. This is the first episode in a series on democracy that we're doing around the U.S. midterm elections. And I want to start by asking you to help us set the stage. So in any given year, we would care certainly, about political participation. But this year, the issue feels even more important because democracy itself seems to be under threat. And that's true here in the United States and all over the world. Research is showing that democracies are facing a backlash in many places, and authoritarian states are becoming, in some cases, more powerful. Ceci, you're part of an initiative at the University of California Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation, which supports this podcast, called The Future of Democracy. Can you give us a bit of context about what is happening globally to democracy? That's great. That's a great question, Lindsay. And yes, absolutely. I think part of the impetus for starting this Future of Democracy project is precisely the types of issues that you're that you were talking about, you know, in your question, the idea of democratic backsliding and this idea of retrenchments and this rise of anti-democratic sentiment um, around the world. Um, as a response to what's really this perception that democratic institutions are not working, right? I think that's sort of at the uh, fundamentally at the heart of a lot of, of these types of things. But along with that comes like, it comes in different flavors, right? And so it, things like the rise of populism, um, the po- even things like the popularity of uh, outsider politicians or politicians considered to be outsiders. Uh, and this idea of being able, you know, can we just get things done by working outside of democratic institutions, right? And so that's what you see things like strongmen and looking at extrajudicial, you know, ways of um, uh, of uh, of governing. And so I think part of, um, you know, what what causes those trends and what the implications are of those trends is a big uh, centerpiece of the future democracy project. Um and in terms of broader trends, I think that we see that link up to that, at least for me, one of the things that I think is most striking and relevant to the issue of political participation that we're talking about today is really the fundamental changes to the way that elections and campaigns are being run, right? Technology, social media, the way that 
social networks are right now have really changed the way that information about elections and politicians is disseminated to voters. Um, social media, even, you know, like I'm really old. So, you know, I went, like I still remember when it was just Facebook when we talked about social media. Um, but now the fact that we have things like TikTok and different ways of engaging in social media, the different flavors and, and styles of social media have really changed the way that campaigns are run and the way that voters and candidates interact with each other. Um, and even things like shaping the messaging of campaigns, you know, what kinds of messages are, are going to be heard versus others. Well, if you only have 20 seconds or 30 seconds, right, like you can imagine that you're not going to get as much policy in the discussions, you're going to get a lot more emotional campaigning, a lot more negative campaigning. Uh, and so I think a lot of those things go together in, in many ways. Um, but that's the one that I think we, you know, we should, that I'd love to start with in terms of thinking about participation more broadly is just how much change we've really seen just in the past few years. So we know that political participation, as you said, is incredibly important to democracy. Um, Americans who are typically behind our peers in electoral participation voted in record numbers in the 2020 presidential election, but we still lag behind a lot of countries. Christopher, you've done a lot of research looking at the determinants of political participation in the U.S. What are some of the things that you've found? When we think about participation, we can sort of approach it in two ways. Um, the first is to ask why people participate, what motivates them to get involved in politics. But another way to think about it is why don't why don't some people participate? And here we tend to think of four reasons. First, some people just don't want to, and some of this might be a whole uh, like a sort of cold hard calculus that voting won't change the outcome of an election. I mean, after all. You know, none of us have ever cast a tie-breaking vote in a in a big election. But for other people, they it, it may not be this kind of cold, hard calculus. It may just be that they don't think politics is relevant to their lives. So, for example, someone who's poor might think to themselves, "I was poor when there was a Republican in office. I was poor when there was a Democrat in office. Does it really matter whether I go out and vote for one party or the other?" You know, as Ceci was mentioning, a lot of elections have moved onto social media and it sort of has led to this um, sort of like bite-sized campaigning with these like little 30-second clips or less, a lot of more negativity, um, fear-mongering. And I think that can turn some people off from the process as well. The second reason, though, is that some people don't participate because they can't. They may lack the resources that are required for participation. You know, you can't donate money if you don't have it. And, you know, you can't volunteer for a campaign or attend a town hall meeting if you don't have the time because you're working multiple jobs or you're trying to balance work life and caretaking responsibilities. So for some people, it's a matter of resources. And we know that people who have more resources, more time, more money, more mental bandwidth, more civic skills are more participative. The, the, a third reason we think about often has to do with, you know, some people just were never asked to participate. Um, a huge, a huge source of engagement in politics is that people are recruited into it. Um, you know, they're, they find themselves at a political meeting or at a protest or at the polling place because a family member or a friend asked them to join. And, and so they end up going and, and, and political parties, in fact, to target people who they think are likely to turn out, which means that they're not targeting people who they think may not be a sure bet to participate. And so oftentimes, 
people don't participate because no one has asked them, you know, and, and the fourth reason, some people don't participate because they're not allowed to. Um, and, and throughout American history, different groups have been disenfranchised, you know, whether it's people who don't own property, whether it's black Americans or women or felons. And, and today the franchise is pretty nearly universal for excluding children. But just because most adults have the right to vote doesn't mean that states make it easy to do so. And in recent years, a lot of political scientists have started talking about what states can do to make voting more accessible or less accessible. And this can be things like how many polling stations there are, whether there's same day registration, whether you can vote by mail or vote early, what's required to get a ballot counted, whether you need an ID to vote. So these little things can really add up and make it difficult for regular people to participate. To a certain extent, I, su I suspect that all these different pieces of the puzzle have been uh, around for a long time. But the but one of the biggest changes is, as you said, this, the technology and sort of the speed of information that's happening in this ecosystem. And when you think, Ceci, about all of these different um, barriers or drivers to participation or not participation, to not participate. What is the role of social media, of technology, of information in our networks? The ideal is that it motivates us, that it empowers us, that it connects us to help us overcome some of the things that Christopher was just talking about. Does it, does the evidence show that that's what it does or is it having the opposite of the intended effect? That's a really good question. I think in you know in different contexts, it, it, it you know you get we've seen that it can mobilize, right? So there's a lot of work on things like protests, and you know so social media is great for helping coordinate. Um, action and collective action around a lot of different things. It's helpful for voters coordinating on things. Um, so I think that's definitely, you know, an effect that's out there. Um, but I think, but it's hard to say how much of it is balanced out by the types of negative things that, you know, Christopher had referred to things like the, almost this idea of uh, disillusionment, right? Or demobilizing because um, you see so much negativity or you see or you see the way that politics is reflected in these little sound bites doesn't relate to you in your life anymore. Right. Um, and so I think it has these sort of dual types of effects in the sense that it it helps with coordination and communication in those in those circumstances. Um, but it doesn't there's that doesn't tell us anything about the content or the quality of that coordination and participation, right? So what do I mean by that? Like you could imagine that you're mobilizing something great to go, you know, voter registration and voting rights or something, but you, the very same tool can also be used to mobilize, um, you know, the people who stand near the polls and, you know, sort of scare and intimidate voters, right? So the idea that it's a tool that facilitates this sort of this type of collective action, but it doesn't, you know, they, they, there's nobody at Facebook who makes sure that it's only used for good. Social media really is a double-edged sword. That it makes people with more extreme views, it makes it easier them, for them to find one another than they have in the past. And, and what that allows is for people with more extreme views to organize and to come to dominate the process. And when you mix that with this widespread misinformation that exists on social media, it really can undercut that initial benefit of lowering transaction costs and, and making it easy for people to participate. And so it's sort of hard to 
know like is social media a good thing for democracy is it a, is it a bad thing and maybe it's a little bit of both i think one of the other problems with social media too is that oftentimes the candidates use it to campaign and they and they can sort of try to evoke these emotions that are mobilizing things like anger or fear but the cumulative effect of being exposed to this fear and this anger and this anxiety over and over again i think can actually be depressing and can actually lead you to withdraw because you just think oh my gosh it never ends it's always here it's always going on and maybe there's just nothing ultimately that i can do about it i can testify to the depressing feeling Thinking about, you know, what groups face the most severe barriers to participation here in the U.S.? I mean, there's sort of, it's intuitive to assume that it would be the poorest, the least educated. Uh, We hear a lot about young people not participating. And again, there's a difference between, you know, sort of barriers and then choices to not reach out. But I'm, I'm curious, you know, what are which groups uh, face the biggest barriers in the U.S.? How is what we experience here similar or different from, Ceci, you've done a ton of research in the Philippines. I mean, what's what's the, how are we different and how are we the same as everybody else? So one thing that I found really interesting is that for the longest time, like basically my entire time researching the Philippines and other, um, you know, sort of newer or less consolidated democracies, um, is that I always thought of them as being very separate from the U.S. or the issues being so fundamentally different. But um, I have to say, just in the past few years, like a lot of it is looking very similar, right? So the idea of misinformation, uh, the fake news phenomenon, populism, um, uh, we, you know, the Philippines even has their own version of Trump, right? For, <laughs> so yeah. uh, he likes to say that he was the original. So I'm like, okay, if that's what you want oh, to claim. Man. <laughs> And so what I find is that there, in, in a lot of ways, the types of challenges that before we would only expect to see in consolidating democracies we are starting to see in the U.S. as well. And so the whole tone of U.S. politics, I think, has changed um, considerably. So that's one sort of similarity or, I guess, convergence. But the other, and I think the one that worries me the most, is that barriers, the way we think about barriers in the U.S. used to be mostly informal, right? We, talk, we, we talked about how uh, we want to make sure that everybody has the same opportunity to vote, you know, people are motivated to vote, people are interested, etc. Um, but now we're actually seeing things that look a lot like formal barriers, right? That we're, where the barriers are more structural and institutional or, you know, like almost outright effects to try to reduce the number of polling places in certain areas because of demographic characteristics or even things that would make, you know, if you looked at just the data, you know, without any kind of partisan uh, viewpoint on it. But if you looked at data and you saw that to vote in one area of a state was, you know, you wait in line for four hours and to vote in another area, you wait in line for 30 minutes. It's pretty hard to say that that. Well, right, or that's uh, that that there's not something strange going on that's beyond these sort of intrinsic types of things that we were talking about as limits to participation. And in my view, those are the most worrisome, right? On some level, we we let people be who they are and make their own choices, right? Part of respecting that is if they don't want to vote, they don't vote. But the worrying trends I see are not really anything about in tra- changes in that intrinsic 
trends or the way that people are believing or perceiving um, their role in politics, but it's actually things that look more like structural and institutional ways of limiting who gets to vote and making it harder for certain groups of people to vote in this country. Christopher, over to you. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think one of the challenges is that political parties have come to see it in their in- as being in their interest to either expand or restrict the scope of conflict. That is who gets to vote or who doesn't get, get to vote as a viable pathway to winning elections, as opposed to putting out ideas, letting voters weigh competing policy platforms and make a decision about what they think is best. And rather than sort of competing in that marketplace of ideas, parties sort of have decided it's just easier to try and restrict vote, you know, access to the ballot so that you get the right set of voters showing up. And that is really troubling from a democratic standpoint. And, and, and it also makes it difficult to reach a consensus about how elections should be run because people, parties have a self-interest in how they answer that question. And so, you know, I think um, as as we sort of think about different groups and the barriers that they face to participating, I think it's really useful th- th- that these different groups can sort of shed light on how we can improve the process. So, you know, for example, um, you know, like people living in rural places, for instance, probably have to travel further to get to a polling place than people living in urban areas. But people living in urban areas probably have to wait in a longer line to cast their vote once they get to the polling place than people in urban places. And and so it's sort of like, how do we make sure that both of these groups can, you, you know, these are not like comparable problems or easily compared problems. And, and so I think the the best way to sort of think about it is like, what can we learn by looking at each of these groups about how we can improve the process to make it easier for them to participate? And, you know, I think about this with other groups too. So, um, for example, I've done a lot of research on how depression shapes the political engagement, uh, shapes the way people think about politics and engage with politics. And, and one thing I found with my co-author, Claudia Lanver, is that people with depression are much less likely to participate in activities that are more physically demanding. So going to a protest or attending a meeting or voting often requires a person to leave their home, which can be challenging for people with depression. And activities that they can do from home, for example, like signing a petition or contacting an an elected official are a lot easier. And to me, this suggests that if we can sort of expand the ways that people can participate so they can so that they're less physically demanding, um, we might be able to bring more people into into the fold of politics. There, a lot more people are dealing with a lot more mental health problems since the pandemic, and those seem to have persisted even as things have opened up a little bit more and people have been able to resume everyday life in more pre-pandemic ways. I mean, even I think it was yesterday, there was that report that was suggesting doctors start screening everyone, all adults for anxiety. And so these, there's this like residue from the pandemic that has continued to this day and has implications for how we think about political participation. Ceci, you, you've looked at particular kind of, I guess, corruption of political participation that is nonetheless very common, um, which is vote buying. 
uh, where, you know, a candidate will just provide cash or, or gifts um, in exchange for political support, which is another way of, of making sure that you get the votes that you want. Um, and you've looked at this um, extensively again in the Philippines. How prevalent is that kind of manipulation in democracies and how does it affect the democratic process overall? I mean, so um, the first thing is that it, you know, one thing we always talk about in in the in the U.S. is about turnout, right? How do we get people out to vote? Um, well, the the countries that have vote buying turnout is you know 80, 90 percent, right? Because you get money to go and <laughs> to go and vote. These are monetary incentives to go and vote. So uh, that's also a story in why you know things like turnout aren't everything, right? It matters why they're they're being out there and 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 why they're there to begin with. Um, and vote buying, I think, is one of those interesting things that when you're, you're starting out, when thinking about it, it sounds really bad and awful. And it is, you know, in a lot of ways, it's illegal. You know, we should not be doing it. It's very anti-democratic in a lot of ways. Um, but I remembered, you know, talking to some, just some villagers in the Philippines. And what they told me was, well, you know, this is the only time we're going to get anything out of these politicians. So that's why we're doing this vote buying. And to me, that made a lot of sense, right? If you're working in, if you're working in a context where your politicians can't make promises and don't keep them anyway, right? Then what, how is it that you make sure that you're getting what you want and, and you have reasons to vote, right? And so um, it's not, um, it's not very uncommon that that becomes the way that campaigning is done because there's no other way for politicians to sort of deliver, right? If there's no if, if if the name of the game is just, you know, taking stuff and then giving it to the, your supporters, um, it's really hard to be able to to to, sh to switch to something that looks more like policy based types of campaigning. Um, the problem, though, is that I think there's a lot of downstream effects to things like this, these sort of illegal manipulations of the vote. They're not all the same. Right. So, for example, if you had to you know, that I remember there was this big effort to try to end vote buying in the Philippines. And they said, oh, you know, why aren't you so excited about it? Says, you know, I'm like, well, because I'm not so sure that the result is going to be like, you know, political parties that function nicely. What if the result is more electoral violence? Right. So the idea that, you know, before we're thinking about taking out one of the pieces of something that's that's not working, we have to think very hard about what we what's going to replace it and what's going to be there instead. Um, but one thing I thought that was really interesting um, and applicable to the U.S. coming out of these contexts is that even very small changes in elections processes to make them more fair or more democratic um, can lead to even downstream changes in attitudes about democracy. So for example, in the Philippines, just reducing wait times to go vote, right? Had this big effect in people perceiving elections as, as more fair, perceiving their votes as being counted, or perceiving even things like perceiving their vote as secret, right? So it's like, why, why would those things be related? Um, but this this idea that you know, creating access and creating that space and making those processes function well um, has payoffs beyond just, you know, the number of people can vote on election day, right? It, it has the potential to fundamentally change and affect the way that people feel about their democracy and people feel about their government. Even these small investments in making the process easier or making the process better can lead to broader feelings about democracy being, you know, good that aren't necessarily partisan linked. What do you both think are some of the most important things that can be done? I mean, if you were advising 
um, decision makers here in the U.S. who want to strengthen democracy and you are going to tell them what they need to do on Monday morning. I mean, what are some of the most important things that that you think should they should be focusing on to make participation in the U.S. more equitable? On the one hand, um, I think this what 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 off, scholars often refer to as vertical mistrust. So this this mistrust that a lot of people have in the political process is very harmful to democracy. And so, for example, there's, you know, on uh, among a lot of conservatives in the United States right now, there's this idea that uh, the president, President Biden, won the election unfairly, that it was stolen, it was fraudulent. And I think that idea that really undermines democracy. And so rebuilding people's trust in the process, I think, is so, so, so important. It is not an easy task to do, especially as we were talking about earlier with the sort of the spread of misinformation on social media. Um, People don't always know what information they can turn to or not turn to. So they sort of end up turning to um, like their preferred news sources or partisan, you know, um, leaders who tell them the story that is going to sort of help their party. And, and so I think somehow getting rebuilding that trust is, is crucial. And um, thinking about ways we can reduce the spread of misinformation is, is one of those, is one of those ways. I also think, um, as Ceci was saying, getting people to participate and can build their um, trust in the process and their satisfaction with democracy. And so there are some like really big proposals that I think are particularly interesting, but obviously face really substantial barriers to implementation. Um, But I think, you know, things like um, increasing the number of representatives we have in each congressional district. So right now we have what is called single member districts. Each district elects one representative to go to Congress, um, at least in the House of Representatives, the Senate is a little bit different. And in a lot of countries, actually, the in a lot of democracies, they elect multiple members from those from each district. And what that does is it allows for there to be more parties because it makes it possible for more parties to be competitive. And I think that, I mean, it's a really, it's a huge change, but I think when you have more parties that are competing with one another, people can find, you know, people can identify, feel, people find a party that fits with them better. And that brings them into the process. You know, right now, I think a lot of people feel like I don't, I'm not a hundred percent Democrat. I'm not a hundred percent Republican. I, you know, don't like a lot of aspects of each of them, but those are the only choices I have. And so, you know, I'm either picking between the lesser of two evils or, um, you know, I'm just like voting for something I don't feel that passionate about. And I think allowing for more par- more parties would energize people about democracy more. So that, that's like one thing I think would be, I would love to see. Obviously, it's really challenging to do that. Um, I think ranked choice voting would be a great option. And we're seeing that explored in different localities through United, throughout the United States. We just saw um, an election in Alaska that used ranked choice voting. And, and the great thing about ranked choice voting is it, it means that um, voters who, right now, if you vote for the losing candidate, you 
you don't have, your voice is just not heard at all. But in rank choice voting, you rank all the candidates in the order in which you prefer them. And so if your most preferred candidate sort of isn't going to win, you your um, preferences about the other candidates still count towards the final outcome. And so I think that would be another really great thing. And and maybe the way we end up with ranked choice voting is by it diffusing across localities and states as opposed to it being um, imposed top down. So like saying, oh, all at once, we're going to turn everywhere in the United States into ranked choice voting. But, you know, if Alaska does it and Maine does it, and then these other places start adopting it because they see it's working in these different states and localities, we may be able to get there. So those are a few of the things that I like to keep in mind. Um, Lee Drutman, who's a political scientist and a big political commentator, has written a book about some of the recommendations he has. And I think it's um, his recommendations, which are in line with what I've been talking about, are I would really recommend um, and get behind if, you know, listeners were interested in checking out and learning a little bit more about these these proposals. Ceci, I want to ask you the same question about what you think is the most important thing to do on Monday morning. Um, but I, I'm, one of, I'm especially interested in what you think about... Um, Christopher mentioned, you both have mentioned the role of, um, of social media, of misinformation, disinformation. When I think about social networks, I mean, social media is like one of the things I think about, but we also all have families. We all have friends, you know, in the real world, outside of social media, we go to like churches, we go to work, we go to yoga or whatever. So there are all these like social networks that we're a part of that are influencing us in all kinds of ways. My assumption is that those human interactions would be much more influential than anything that's kind of on our phone. And I'm just curious what what you make of that. And then more broadly, I mean, what what do you think would be some of the most important things that the U.S. should do to strengthen political participation, especially uh, among the most kind of the most marginalized, the most vulnerable? One thing I think that's really uh, interesting about networks in the U.S. is that a lot of the ways that we could uh, Think about well, for one thing, absolutely on you know persuasion and influence and you know all those in-person interactions mattering. Um, but one thing that I think is really interesting is that networks look a little bit different for different groups, right? So, and access to networks varies. If we're thinking about networks, uh, political networks or explicitly political networks, for example. Um, in in many countries, uh, women's access to those is different than men's, right? Or they're just uh, going back to Christopher's point about who gets invited to the party, right? And so um, a lot of times it's your underlying network that determines whether you're invited to the party or not. Um, it's your underlying network that determines whether you see the important announcement or the imp- important thing, or if somebody suggests that you should run for office. Um and what we find is that though for marginalized groups, um, for women, for for members of minority communities, that that social nudge is often a lot more important. It's a lot more powerful. So, you know, social nudges work for everybody, but um, they're especially powerful for women and for, for members of minority groups. So if we imagine, you know, empowering that and doing more of that, even if you're doing social nudges for everybody, because they disproportionately help those who are um, marginalized in traditional networks, um, it can have an effect that go that is actually a little bit equalizing, right? Versus I find a lot of initiatives about participation 
tend, you know, they, they work in the sense of, you know, the, the interventions themselves work. So educating people, civic education type of stuff. But the bad side is they actually end up widening the gap between the marginalized and non-marginalized because, for example, civic education, where does that happen? That happens in schools, right? So in other places, there are people who are not in the school, right? Or you're doing, you know, young Republicans and young Democrats on college campuses, you know, you're getting the people that are probably don't need the help. So even if we're at a point where we're seeing a lot of these interventions, these interventions are working, we need to ask ourselves too, is that, okay, we know it works, but is the thing that we're doing actually widening that uh, participation gap between people who are marginalized and people who aren't? And then targeting interventions directly to the communities that need it, rather than, you know, here we're going to do civic education in schools or civic education in college campuses, something that looks a little more targeted, working with the communities that actually need the help. I think for the U.S., the the saddest thing is that I think any country that has such big disparities and just basic things like access to access to, you know, being able to vote or like waiting time to vote. To me, there's no reason why there should be significant differences based on the color of your skin for waiting time to vote. Like, maybe there's some nice way to explain that away. But to me, what that says is that we're not quite done consolidating yet. You know, like we're we're a developed democracy, but we're not quite all the way done with with the work that needs to be to be done to make sure that when we say that it's a democracy, that it really is right. These things where it's almost like hiding uh, structural and institutional inequalities um, under this veneer of democracy. Um, but those things count. I, I just want to add to what Ceci is saying, because I, I find it really heartening, actually, because one of the things I was talking about are these like really large scale institutional changes that are almost kind of pie in the sky in some ways. And and I think they can be really important and big, but they're they're, you know, le- very, very less feasible to accomplish. And and I like what Ceci's talking about with these like so- smaller social nudges that can have an impact. And so I think it's really useful to sort of think about potential changes from both directions, like the the large scale ones and these smaller social nudges. And the other thing I'm hearing Ceci talk a lot about is forms of participation that are not voting. And oftentimes, um, in fact, actually the biggest inequities in participation really occur in the activities that are the most resource intensive. And, And it's really not voting where there are the biggest inequities. It's donating money to a party or candidate or who's who's running for office or who's attending a political meeting or volunteering for a campaign. And and with voting, you know, it's the most visible um, form of participation. I mean, we all sort of follow the results of the election, whether we voted or not. So we we know who did vote, who didn't vote, what the gap is between, you know, different groups. But with these other things, they're less visible to us. And so we don't always see that there is a gap or um, that there is actually a really large gap. And bringing equity to these other forms can be challenging, but is is really important. And and I love that example you gave of, you know, nudging women to run for office just by telling them, like, you know, you have friends who think you can do this. And that transforms the way they see themselves as a political actor in a democracy. And that's great. Thank you both for being with us today on Talking Policy, Ceci Cruz and Christopher Ojeda and listeners um, who are interested in learning more absolutely have to go to their websites and, and look at some of the research that they've done because it is fascinating. And um, and really, I mean, more important than ever, you guys are studying things that are 
you know, realities that are changing in our own country, in our own communities. So it matters uh, what you guys do. And we appreciate you being with us today on Talking Policy. Yeah, thank you for having us, Lindsay. Thanks for being with us at IGCC and have a great week.